Good evening and welcome back to uh, Church History. Welcome to session two of the second semester of On the Shoulders of Giants, uh, our little overview of, of church history. We're picking up in the Reformation. We're going to do an overview of Renaissance and Reformation, all that was going on during the, the early part of the uh, 16th century. But before we get started, let's pray. And as we do go to the Lord, we're going to remember Mark Palmer, who has uh, been taken, uh, I, I guess, once again to the doctor uh, and even to the hospital uh, for some ongoing abdominal issues. So we're going to pray for him as well. Let's pray. Father God, we do praise you and thank you that you are a God of love, a God who ordains all that is and that it is all according to your plan, that you are good all the time and that all the time you are good. We do pray for Mark this evening that uh, you would watch over him, uh, give him the, the faith that he needs to rely on you no matter what the circumstances, no matter what the diagnosis. I pray that you would heal his body. Uh, let it be quickly. Let the doctors perceive that your hand is upon him. I pray that you would comfort the family, and that you would draw your family together uh, as, as this church body and uh, unite in prayer. And Lord, we also unite continually uh, as we uh, seek your face, seek your will in the study of church history, understanding that your hand was upon uh, other fallible people just like us. We do pray that you would enlighten us to the truth of your word uh, as it is uh, laid out before us through the history and lives of those whom we're going to study. I pray that through it all, that you would be glorified. Help us to understand what is taught, that we can take it, and uh, to discern the truth from your scripture and apply it to our lives. To you be the glory, and we praise these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, as we get started this week, um, Brad had mentioned before that I was going to do most of the speaking, and being the genius that I am, I'm bringing other people in to do the work for me. <laughs> Uh, so uh, Bert, one of the elders, is going to accompany us in the conversation and during the first half of the, the session when we talk about Renaissance and all that in, that encompasses. And then uh, Sam Brown from Grace Prez in, in Fuquay, you may remember him from uh, prior encounters, that uh, he will be giving us the, the overview of what the Reformation was, some of the causes of Reformation, one of the thing, some of the things that we learned and can take away from Reformation. Uh, some of the names and faces that we can look for in, in the coming chapters and months as we continue our, our trek through church history. So with that, Brad, I'm going to turn it over to you. And I'm going to be talking about the Renaissance, but before I do, let me just say how really happy I am for Sam Brown to be here. Uh, a wonderful man, and you're going to love what he talks about in the second half of this session. We're talking about the events leading up to the Renaissance. Um, and, and Bert is going to help me on this section uh, uh, with some insight into what, especially what the arts were like in that time. Uh, recently, someone asked me, actually a seminary student asked me, what advice do you have for young preachers? It was in an interview. And I said, the worst sermon you will ever preach is the one in which you say everything you know about a text. You need to know so much more about what's going on, the context, the grammar, the, the details, the, the Old Testament connections, then you're able to say in one session, I just want you to know that everything that I say tonight is everything that I know about this uh, particular. <laughs> and I got it from this book. Um, 
in our Needham, uh, that uh, if you've listened to the Borgman tapes, you hear him reference this guy all uh, the time. So the Renaissance was a, a time in which everything was changing. It, it didn't really get cranked until midway through the 15th century, the late 1400s. But it actually, the, the, the movement toward this mass uh, uh, acceptance of the principles of the Renaissance was getting in place all over Europe. Uh, quite interesting. So the word Renaissance means French. Um, it, it, excuse me, it's French for rebirth. It's a French word. It means rebirth. And the, the men of the Renaissance were seeking to recapture uh, the glory days. And the glory days were the days of Greece, the days of Rome. It's quite interesting that uh, the Renaissance began in Italy, right in the heart of Catholicism, right where Catholicism was. Actually, it's not necessarily all that interesting because you can see people are reacting to the abuses of the church that they see much more clearly than a lot of people around uh, the empire are able to see. Uh, just a, a couple of names. Francesco Petrarch it lived in the early 1300s. So you can see this was moving uh, even as early as the 1300s. He, Petrarch coined the term dark ages. He looked back to the Middle Ages and he says, this is a dark time that we're in. Not as dark as it was maybe 500 years ago, but it's been dark ever since Augustine, ever since uh, the, the, the Vandals conquered uh, the, the Roman Empire. Um, you'll see this time and again, reaction against scholasticism. Uh, scholasticism, you will remember, was this school of thinkers and theologians, um, the most famous of whom is um, what's our, uh, Thomas Aquinas, for goodness sake. Thomas Aquinas had a huge impact on the church. And, and Thomas was a big fan of Aristotle, the philosopher Aristotle. Up until this time, uh, most, well, up until at least through Augustine, most of the theologians who appreciated philosophy leaned a lot more toward Plato than they did Aristotle. Plato, you know, was a dualist. There's the material reality and there's the spiritual reality. And the spiritual reality is the one that really counts. And we're sort of slaves in this body and this earth that is ugly and dirty, and our goal is to one day be freed from this. and be. Well, you can see how Gnosticism comes from that. You can also see how Augustine uh, thinks about the human body, because Augustine was taken with Plato, really loved Plato, called him the philosopher. Well, Thomas Aquinas changed all of that. He was more uh, Aristotelian in his thought. Aristotle... In, in response to Plato said, yes, the spiritual is important, but the here and now is important. Um, and the ways that we think today and Western thoughts, patterns of Western thought are in many ways Aristotelian, the laws of logic, 
came from Aristotle. And Thomas picked up on that. And, and Augustine is saying, listen, this, there's so much evil in this existence that the only way we can learn from God is if the Spirit of God does all of his work in us. Aris, uh, Thomas Aquinas says, eh, you know, um, actually, man has been given the ability to reason. Look at the ways that we think. And we can work our way a long ways toward God. Can't get there entirely without the Spirit. But we can come pretty darn close. And so, um, but this way of reasoning uh, about the Scriptures became abhorrent to the thinkers of the Renaissance uh, because it was far more man-centered than it was God-centered. And so Petrarch had a strong reaction against scholasticism, and he saw Plato as the supreme philosopher. And by the way, know this, that all of this that we're talking about is within the context of the church. Now, there is some intellectual life that is outside of the church but for the most part all of this is within the church and it's trying to be understood these changes that are taking place are being understood um, through the context of the church Giovanni Pico della Merendola uh, short life 1463 to 1494 31 years old huge impact Uh, the oration on the dignity dignity of man. God put humankind in the universe to study, investigate, and understand everything that it contains. Boy, that sounds very modern, doesn't it? Sounds very modern, very postmodern. I mean, we're all about learning. We want to know everything that we can know. The priest, the, the professional clergy were just about the only people who knew anything, and those who were in government, civil government, law. But the, the masses... Education was withheld from them. And, and Petrarch says, no, we want everybody to know everything. Well, Italy, there's so much more that could be said about Italy. Um, but Germany, it's very important. Uh, the Renaissance began in Italy. It was the strongest in Italy, and it really drove things. But what was happening in Germany was going to make a huge difference in all of our lives Uh, very shortly. Germany, once again, the German uh, theologians were moving away from allegorical interpretation of scripture, of of scholasticism. See, scholastics, even though they reasoned their way to God, they found spiritual truth in almost everything in scripture. When it wasn't there, they were just looking, oh, what is this uh, spiritual truth? And I, I should have some good examples and maybe somebody else can jump in, but crazy things. Well, this represents this, this represents that. The donkey represents, you know, Mary, Joseph and Mary are going down and the donkey. Well, to give a, an interpretation that's uh, still an allegorical interpretation that still even persists today, but I think would be a fair example, would be like Rahab's rope, the scarlet cord that she hung from her window. Well, that's obviously, according to an allegorical interpretation, that's obviously a picture of the blood of Christ flowing out. That would be sufficient for her. Well, it could also be that a red rope is really visible against a city wall. So that's a mild example the scholastics were taking that to the extreme. Yeah. Yes, absolutely. And so there's this reaction. Uh, but it particularly uh, um, 
oh, what's my word I'm looking for, particularly representative of German uh, theological work was the grammatical, historical, or the grammatico, it would have been called then, historical method of interpretation of scripture. Fourth and fifth century uh, theologians in the city of Antioch particularly used this method of trying to understand scripture in its context, not just looking for the spiritual nugget, so to speak, like the red, the scarlet rope representing the blood of Christ, not just Look, oh, we see Jesus all over the Old Testament, but sometimes it's like, where's Waldo? You know, everything. You're looking for Jesus. Where's Jesus? And sometimes there is truth being taught that it all points that way. But if you start, if you get carried away with allegorizing Scripture, you can go crazy with it. So what do you think is going to happen when people start studying Scripture from a grammatical, historical approach, trying to understand what was going on in the time, the understanding the grammar, and then they compare what they're finding with what's going on in the church. They're going to find some huge differences. And so people's minds are beginning to move away from Rome. And Rome is going as hard as it can in crazy unbiblical directions. And now... These German scholars are, um, are finding some, some real truth in Scripture that just doesn't jibe with the Catholic teachings. Nationalism was huge in Germany. German humanists. Humanism, by the way, a term that we apply to this day, uh, wasn't technically coined until the 19th century by, I think, Niethammer, I think is the guy's name, a German thinker. Um, but... It fits for what was going on in that time. And we'll talk more about humanism in just a moment. But German humanists thought Germans were the most noble race on earth. You know any other Germans that have thought that? Uh, uh, actually, uh, William Scherer in his uh, book, Rise and Fall of the Third Reich, um, says that twice that the one person responds more responsible in Germany's history for the German people accepting Adolf Hitler than any other was uh, uh, Martin Luther because of his passionate anti-Semitism and his fierce nationalism. Um, you also have to understand that Scherer was a communist, so he wrote uh, anything he could write pejoratively about Luther, I'm sure, but, but there's some truth in that too. I mean, Luther capitalized, he, he made the best use imaginable of this nationalism to bring about the Reformation. Reformation. Well, let's say that God put it all together. Um, a, a common word that we hear in um, the Renaissance era was at Fontes, back to the sources you've heard uh, Neil talked about this before. Back to the sources, the original sources. Um, back to Greek and Roman culture. Back to Greek thought, particularly. Uh, Roman thought, Roman law uh, was quite appealing. But Greek philosophy was especially appealing. And when I say Greek philosophy, I mean Plato over Aristotle. Plato is once again ascending. And Aristotle is is falling during this time. Early church fathers, the, the 
the, the thinkers of the Renaissance wanted to know what did the early church fathers think? Because some of this stuff that's coming out of Rome is so convoluted. It makes no sense whatsoever. Let's make sure this jibes with what the, the early church fathers... And that is extremely important. We've seen over and over how fallible these guys were in the early church. And yet, how important they were and how brilliant they were in forming theology that we tend to take for granted that was quite difficult to work through. They also wanted to look at the original languages of Scripture, much more Greek than Hebrew. A lot of the Renaissance thinkers um, had the same kind of thoughts that a lot of people do today. The Old Testament is vulgar, it's mean, it's brutal, violent. We want to spend our time in the in the New Testament. So, there we go. Humanism. Um, and this is where Professor Wallace and any, any three of you guys or anybody that has a question at any point or something to add, please raise your hand so that I might ignore you and move on. No, I'm just kidding. Humanism. It's not the humanism of today. What, what, look at that first sentence. Be all that God intended for you to be. What's left out of that today in humanism? Just God, right? Be all you can be. Um, there was a renewed interest and excitement about humane studies such as grammar and rhetoric and poetry and history and philosophy and also human beings are communicators. Uh, speech, music, and art was changing dramatically. And this is a, a real interest in uh, a, a area of expertise for you, Bert. So jump in and tell us about that. Um, well, I, you know, I can talk about uh, a lot of stuff. I'll maybe focus on, on drama, but obviously the arts in general were changing. Probably the, one of the main important things, which figures into a lot of things, is um, the idea that perspective drawing and painting was coming into being. If you look at medieval and earlier art, it's very flat, two-dimensional. The, the, the figures are not in perspective. Um, you know, you'll see little tiny figures, which are meant to suggest they're far away, but they, they, the composition isn't what we would expect to see today. It looks, uh, well, we sometimes would use the word like primitive. You, know, you see primitive art today, like folk art, and it's very flat, two-dimensional. But these through studies of, of mathematical principles and stuff, they developed a perspective drawing technique. So now you begin to see these paintings like we think of a painting, like it really looks like a real person or a real building, um, a landscape or whatever, in perspective from a particular point of view, right? As opposed to um, earlier stuff, which was a, kind of just a bunch of stuff mashed together, or, or modern, postmodern art, which is meant to be seen from multiple perspectives, you know, as opposed to the Renaissance idea of a single perspective, um, which kind of implies that there is a single correct perspective. Um, and they were, so that was working itself out in the visual arts. Um, drama uh, was becoming... Uh, the medieval drama, which I could go on and on about, but I'll just say a little bit about that, but the church... Um, the early church in Rome particularly was very opposed to drama uh, because the, um, the plays then were, the three basic reasons. One is that they were 
pagan, explicitly pagan worship services. I mean, that's, so that's, you know, bottom line, you're not going to go to a, uh, a festival that's celebrating Jupiter or something like that, you know, if you're a Christian. So they didn't like that. Um, they were often uh, vulgar and dirty, especially the old the Greek and Roman mimes, not mimes like we use that word today, but just sort of variety shows, a lot of different uh, kinds of acts. But a lot of them are very vulgar, nudity or simulated nudity uh, on stage. We don't exactly know because of the nature of art at that time. You know, we don't know if, they were, if the performers were actually nude or maybe they were just uh, in sort of suggested costumes or something. Um, so dirty, shorthand word. And third, they often explicitly mocked Christianity, which was seen as a, a crazy cult at that time. Uh, and they particularly liked to mock baptism and communion. And there's a lot of jokes about uh, cannibalism and uh, eating your God, a lot of sexual jokes about Christianity and stuff. So Christians has nothing to do with that. Like yeah, well, yeah. So uh, Christians just stayed away entirely from the theater. Um, interestingly, the, in the Middle Ages, around 1,000 or so B.C., or A.D., excuse me, um, the church reintroduced drama to the West through these religious plays uh, that began to be done as a part of the Mass. And they really, it's really early getting into what we're talking about, they were meant to communicate to the masses who couldn't read, who if they could read certainly didn't have a Bible. Uh, and even if they did have a Bible, it would have been in Latin, uh, which they wouldn't have been able to read anyway. So anyway, they, they were trying to communicate Bible stories and, and church doctrine to people through drama. So they did plays about biblical stories, uh, which are called mystery plays. They took a lot of liberties with scripture, dramatic liberties. For dramatic purposes, hum purposes of humor. So, For example, there's a play called The Second Shepherd's Pageant, um, where... It's all about the shepherds who go to see Jesus uh, in, is in the stable. But it's really just this comic play. And then just at the very end of it, the very, very end, an angel comes and says, oh, you know, Christ is born. And they, oh, they go to the, kneel down. And that's it. You know, so it's really not the biblical story, but it's, you know, connected to the biblical story. Then there were uh, stories about the saints, the post-biblical saints. Those are very violent. Uh, really, they were about martyrdoms mostly, so people getting, and they, they would stage these very graphically, so people getting, you know, burned alive and drawn and quartered and skinned alive and whatever. They love, just like today, just like movies today, they love graphic violence, and, uh, and they stage a lot of fake stage blood and stuff like that. Uh, the third kind of play were called morality plays, and they were really teaching church doctrine, very Catholic doctrine. The, probably the most famous one is called Every Man. And usually there's a character like that who he represents humanity, like every man, or there's one called Mankind, Adam Goodman, I think is one of them. And uh, it's just about a, a, you know, a person, he's sort of trying to live his life, and he goes along the way, and he meets all these characters that are called things like worldly goods, or jealousy, or lust, or friends and family, you know, sort of representing elements of the human experience. And then he ends up, in the end, getting to the celestial city. It's like Pilgrim's Progress, you know, is very much in the morality play tradition. Um, in Every Man, there's really one thing that stays with every man that gets him into heaven. And that is a character called Good Works. Uh, that explicitly preaching the idea that everything's going to leave you strength, friends, family, your mind, everything. 
but your good works, you know, will stay with you. Uh, penance is very important in that play too, you know, doing penance. Um, so that's kind of what's going on there. And as the Reformation came, we're getting a little bit ahead of ourselves, but the, a lot of the reformers banned those plays. They didn't want them being done because they were very Catholic, and they kept the Catholic minorities kind of stirred up. Um, so we stopped seeing those, but what took its place were very secular, what we would now think of as humanist dramas um, that were very much inspired by the Greek playwrights, particularly uh, Terence, who was a, a Greek comic playwright in the first, second, second century BC. Uh, and they were rediscovering, talking about the back to the sources, they were rediscovering all this stuff, uh, and they were very excited to read these things, and they started writing, either staging those plays or writing plays in a very similar style. So, you know, we're, the, the drama is moving from being explicitly religious and art too to being much more secular. Not totally atheistic or anything like that, but just much more secular. And we really say that in all the arts. Yeah, and interesting. And, and you see that today too, don't you? The, it's a, pretty much a secular emphasis and all of a sudden there's a little spiritual nugget somewhere in there. And so... Um, but, but then, of course, you have the, the, the church that is actually a tremendous patron of, oh, sure. of the arts, especially yes. the, the visual arts. I mean, so that, I mean, that's why we have the Sistine Chapel and, and these right. sorts of things. So uh, it, it, it's, it's a strange mix, yeah. uh, actually. Uh, the, the world really is changing. But because the church remained, in, in the West at least, uh, and in the East as well, uh, really at the center of life, the, the church is being caught up in these movements as well. Yeah. So, that, so you see the, the popes taking money uh, from everyone and, and, and building these massive cathedrals with these incredible works of arts commissioned with them. Yeah. And yeah, I would say the visual arts are retain more of their religious yeah. rooting than, than, say, drama did. Um, the church didn't patronize drama. It did in the, in the mid medieval period, but then as we move into the Renaissance, it kind of dropped that so much, but they certainly, I mean, you know, um, Michelangelo was, most of his stuff was paid for by the church, you know, and David and uh, the Sistine Chapel. And all, I don't know, not everything probably, but most of his work was patronized by the church. So, and a lot of religious subject matter um, in, in the visual art. One of the thing, things about the visual arts, the paintings of that day, is that no longer were they drawing not cartoon-type characters, but unrealistic. Once again, there is a desire to paint as realistically as possible. If I, I'm not going to, you know, paint David and have him screaming and... You know, you see so much of that agony, but they don't look like real people. They look like paintings or replica representations of people, but they're not. But from this point on, even Mary is presented as a maiden, a woman, a, a woman. She doesn't have the halo, you know. So a lot of things are are changing. And one of the go ahead. well, they're also very they're realistic in one sense, but they're also very idealized. So like. David, uh, the famous statue of David, is an unrealistic, 
if you actually look at the proportions of it, it's, it isn't like an actual person. It looks, it looks right, but if you, the hands are really, really large, some people say that's to emphasize the humanity, the humanism, to so make the hands oversized. Other people say that has more to do with perspective, that it was being seen from below, and so that made it look right in perspective. We don't really know, but the point is, if you actually look at a lot of these sculptures particularly, uh, they're not in the right proportions, re totally realistic, they're idealized, um, and, the, and again, that's like the Greeks. I mean, think of the Greek, you think of Greek statuary, it's these sort of very idealized human figures, um, and really also very much celebrating the human form, too. Although minimizing the sexual uh, organs of humans is kind of interesting, too. Sort of, let's think more about the mind and the beauty of the body, but not sort of either chastely cover or very much minimize the sexuality of these characters. Particularly like Mary, you know, like you talk about the mm -hmm. maiden Mary. Although she often is with child and even bare-breasted, but still that's being idealized instead of really, we don't really see what we would, I would call realism, the way we would use that term today, where it's just really meant to look like an actual human for a while, I'd say. And on that, you and Mr. Needham will disagree, but you, I'm gonna take okay. your word on that. You're the, you're the expert there. There's a change of emphasis from the next world to this world. Um, in, in, in the Catholic system, you're hoping that your good works will take you there, uh, just like this um, every man, the play every man. <clears throat> and you're trying to prepare yourself for the next world. So you want to be spiritually minded. You want to be um, uh, morally upright. You, you want to be in prayer a great deal of time. You want to give. So who are the most spiritual people of the day in that kind of a setting. Who are the only people who really can prepare themselves for the next life? Monks and nuns. I mean, people who are professional ministers. They give their life. They separate themselves from society. So, uh, and, and they, are, they have a vested interest in saying, listen, you can't pray as much as I can, but you can give. We need your money so that I can keep doing what I'm doing to help you. And the, the Renaissance thinkers are saying, look, you're, the, the phrase that we've heard so much, you're so heavenly minded, you're of no earthly good. But God intended for this life to be special as well as preparation for eternity. And then Gutenberg's printing press changed everything. It, it, in somewhere around the turn of the millennium in the 19, late 1990s, they started talking about the... 100 greatest people, 100 greatest inventions of the millennium, the previous millennium. And overwhelmingly, the printing press was number one. Not the combustible engine, not flight, not, not television. Printing press. And now sociologists, historians are saying Internet ranks right up there with it. One of the top four or five greatest advances in all of history. And we take it for granted. It's just like, okay, it's always been with, well, it's not always been with us, but <laughs> it has been with those guys in the back back there. Uh, so, um, Erasmus. Desiderius Erasmus. 
a Dutch humanist who almost single-handedly created a new atmosphere in Western culture. For the first time in human history, a man lived to see his writings internationally accepted. Now, there's a sense in which maybe some of the people from the uh, Nicaea, from, from, from uh, the council at Nicaea and some of the councils can understand that because there are movers and shakers in those uh, councils whose teachings go back with the priest who came or the, 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 the ministers who came. But for the most part, you never see it accepted on a broad basis until this time. 226 works, 2.5 million copies circulated, and a lot of that during his time. So everybody knows who Erasmus is. He saw education as a, as a royal route to solving mankind's problems. And again, I think that sounds familiar. It rings a contemporary uh, bell. Praise of Folly uh, was a book in which he ridiculed the immorality and ignorance of church leaders. And all of Europe, all of educated uh, and uh, upwardly mobile Europe was laughing at the priest. And it gained so much popularity so quickly, there's nothing the church can do against it. A lot of people could have never gotten away with some of the things Erasmus did, but he was so clever, so bright, such a good communicator that immediately it resonated with people, or people resonated with it, and that was the end of it. The Catholics couldn't do much. Um, He published the first printed edition of the Greek New Testament again, wanting to get back to the original sources. Uh, And he questioned transubstantiation, but he didn't break with the church like Luther did. Luther and Erasmus went back and forth. We'll talk about that some as we go. Um, He also said, okay, paedo-baptism is acceptable, but uh, it's okay to baptize people after they're older and after they've reached the age of puberty and they can understand. Really, two or three things that uh, Erasmus did sort of set up the Anabaptist movement, which is odd that he wouldn't break from the Catholics, but the Anabaptists were the, the most radical of the of the reformers, hard to even put them in the same category as the other guys. So, he, we, I, I was going to say that we should point out that he didn't break from the church. And he did not. In fact, with right. in his book, Praise of Folly, and I'm sure other books too, he sort of took pains to point out, I'm not ridiculing the church. I'm ridiculing people, specific individuals within the church who are corrupt or ignorant or whatever. But... He sort of went out of his way to say, I'm not attacking the church. Um, and Luther sort of said that same kind of thing, too, although I think he was more, in fact, attacking the church. But he's sort of like his, if you've seen the film or know about Luther, where he's like, look, I just want the Pope to know about all this stuff, because if he knew about it, he would really he, he would do something about it. Then when the, he learns the Pope does know very well about all this stuff, he begins to, to change, but... Yeah, those, and they never met, did they? I don't, I don't think they ever actually I don't think physically so. it's met. It's correspondence. They exchanged so, correspondence. And, and yeah. they debated publicly in, in the means available to them of that day. Uh, wasn't Luther's bondage of the will directed to Erasmus? May have I think been. so. Because they, they have a different distinction between free will and predestination. Oh, yeah. Luther actually is not 
terribly kind <laughs> no, no, no. Uh, in his words in that None book. of those guys he, were. He calls him like the most ignorant, vile devil yeah. or something like that. Yeah. You know, very strong language. Which, it, not to over, I, I try not to use similar language as, as Luther <laughs> with, with uh, opponents, but it, it strikes me that Luther's language gets stronger when the gospel is at stake which is actually very Pauline of him. It's very mm-hmm. much like Paul. Exactly. Uh, if you think about Galatians, because the gospel was at stake, Paul says, I wish those who were troubling you would go ahead and emasculate themselves. He, strong language corresponds to a big issue, a gospel issue. Luther might have been a little more free yeah. than, than that. Most theological debate has been quite polemical in yeah. nature through the years. I don't like it that way, but it's the way it is. And I end up that way more than I want to be, where you're it's very easy to start attacking your opponents. I don't do that, but yeah. rather than their ideas. Luther was quite <laughs> quite the attack attacker. Alright, that's that's essentially oh any questions that you have, I have no answers but because I've said everything that I know. Uh, but any questions? Let's get to the more important stuff. But this is an important foundation that's being laid. And it's religious, but secular is creeping in. You can see it in a great deal of these statements that we've made about humanism and how God wants us to be all we can be. You can see how very quickly that goes badly. Just, I would say one other quick thing about the arts. And, we're ta- and the Renaissance sort of spread from Italy and northward. Uh, it comes to England relatively late, um, but Henry VIII sort of glommed on to the Reformation, uh, in my mind, completely political. political, had nothing to do with religious convictions. In fact, he was a very serious and rather devout Catholic uh, until he decided that he wanted to get a divorce and the Pope wouldn't do that. And so essentially he said, well, I'm going to just kind of join up with this guy in Germany and Make, we'll just sort of break, and so I can do whatever I want. Hey, I'll make myself the head of the church, you know. Um, but the drama that arose, on, and, and all the arts, but on, after that break is a much more secular drama. I mean, the plays of Shakespeare are from that period, and they're not atheistic. I mean, there's a lot of talk about God and spirits and stuff like that, but they definitely have nothing to do with uh, a v- explicitly overtly Christian view like the earlier plays would have, would have. So. That's in England, which is probably not in much of our, we're probably not considering England too much in this not, not, in, not right now. Anyway. Not right now. It, well, with drama, how much was it the church um, with drama uh, before, before the Renaissance, how much was it the church patronizing the drama and how much was it um, those the dramatic groups fear of the church persecuting them if they did anything to uh, tick off the church powers well most of the drama throughout Europe was done at these kind of civic festivals that were sort of co-sponsored by the city and the church Uh, and there were these guilds like, you know, the Tanners or the Grocers Guild or whatever, and, you know, they would sponsor these, these plays. So 
they were they I think there's something to what you're saying. I don't think that any of the people doing that, which by the way are all anonymous, we don't know any of these names of any of those people, but um, it definitely was reinforcing the social values of the time. I mean, they weren't trying to like shake anything up. They were definitely, so there may have been some of that, like, well, maybe we have some pre-Reformation type thinking, but no one's going to be real. Well, like Wycliffe in England, for example, was pre-reformer, pre-reformation reformer who got in a lot of trouble. Um, so I think that, yeah, it's, it's, the drama was not meant as any sort of a force of change, but rather of maintaining the status quo. Yeah. All right, well, let's take a, a short break uh, for the purpose of the video, and then we'll jump right back in with Sam. Okay. Sam. Okay.